Hello, my friends. My name is Aureli. Education Monsters is a podcast that discusses multicultural education. Hello, everyone on Education Monsters. I'm here with Daisy, who has been a guest previously on this podcast, and she came back here to talk to us about her experience in a PhD program, specifically in environmental sciences. So through her all hard work and her struggles, she's telling us like what are the main important lessons that she's learned, and also this episode is all about the power of the educator. So just as a reminder, Daisy is now in Montreal with me, and this is where we met. But she's originally from Indonesia, where she grew up and spent her childhood. So good morning, Daisy, and congratulations again, because you just finished your PhD this April 2020. As your friend, I am so proud of you for doing this. Thank you. So let's jump right in and talking about your PhD. Just can you please tell us about your passion and what exactly led you to it? When I grew up in Indonesia, as you can, as you know, it's a poor country, it's dirty. And I always had this problem internally when I see people, for example, basic things like littering. Like, why do people litter? It's so bad for the environment. It causes flood and it um, pollutes our river and our water. But it's just those like, because my country is such a not clean country then like people people aren't aware of their action when they're litter on the street and when they're driving cars and they throw garbage outside it really makes me upset and when you see rivers clogged with garbage and with pollutants i'm like you know this is the water that we're supposed to be drinking from cleaning from but why is it so dirty so i think that's the more naive reasons why I got into the environmental science. I just want to have a a cleaner environment and more educated mindsets of people in Indonesia to be more responsible for their action and think about what their action do in the long term. If you litter, okay, you might just say, oh, but it's just one. That's the very common thing people say. Oh, but it's just a small thing, but it's not. like It accumulates and people don't think about that. And I'm not sure where I got this from because I was born and raised in Indonesia and I should be just okay with seeing so much garbage on the street. But I, was, I wasn't okay. Yeah, and- I had the same experience in Europe where we're very good at recycling and having several bins for glass, plastic, and uh, regular trash. And even back then when I lived there 10 years ago, people were starting to compost. But mm-hmm. when I came to the States, I was very shocked at how little educated people were because everybody just put everyone everything in a trash because they did not have trust in the system that it was actually going to recycle people were talking about oh we're just sending everything off to china no one's doing everything and people were also talking about sending trash to space they had little hope to clean this planet so why not make it worse and i found that extremely sad that people do not have that awareness that you as a consumer can also make change happen Mm -hmm. So did you think that education and getting a PhD into that was your way of making change? I think I wanted to have a better education so that people could listen to me. I I, actually, I didn't plan on getting my PhD. That was something else. But like, I wanted to get my master's, but I wanted to be well educated so that people could listen when we, when we speak and when we say things to them that we're, we are credible. And also like maybe starting from my house like I would tell my family you cannot litter 
you have to do the right thing for the environment those kinds of things like I think we were just not educated enough. We didn't have enough knowledge to understand the consequences of our actions. But luckily now things have, have changed um, for the better and people are starting to be aware of what they do to the environment, how unfriendly we have been to our environment. So, and I'm glad to see these changes. How often do you have these talks with your family or your friends back home when you lecture them about littering? Do you think it's getting better and better over the years? Right. Um, yes, I think luckily it's getting better and better over the years. And I think like global warming and climate change is real, right? I think like most people believe it now so they can see that, oh my God, we are, our, our floods are becoming worse and more frequent and like thunderstorm, like little rain and the city is flooded. And I, I think people are seeing the impact like right in front of their faces, whether they want to or not. Maybe when I was little, we didn't have that right like we didn't have the significant consequences or a proof that hey you're you have been unfriendly to the environment so stop doing that but now i think whether you want to accept it or not you'll see the impacts like there's so much flooding like that happens all the time and the intensity of floods are also um, increasing and significantly and drought so i think um because of that people are starting to change their behavior and their attitudes, especially those who are educated ones. And I think now the availability and accessibility of internet, it's so easy. It, it helps that people can Google and learn about so many things now, which we didn't have it when we were little, right? So now a lot of people can have access to discover information that were, was not made available um, freely back then or easily at least. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Also, did you think that being in, in the right kind of crowd help you bring your best potential? For example, moving to Canada give you more opportunities to study exactly what you wanted because the crowd was a little more aware than people in Indonesia? Right. I think I was. it was a, such a good decision for me to come to Canada and get my higher education here because... Yeah, like you said, I was placed in an environment where I can see like, okay, this is how people live here. This is how they clean. And this is, um, you can't just litter and you, and the consequences are this. So I think being in the right environment is, is definitely a helpful factor for me. There yeah. are other challenges that come with it though, but. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me your biggest challenge about learning English? Like I, I heard you moved to the West Coast first and then moved to the East Coast where you are with us now. Great. So yes, you're right. I came um, when I first moved from Indonesia, I came to Vancouver. Like I was always a pretty um, good student back in Indonesia. Like my, <laughs> my English, uh, yeah, my English classes, I'm always like excellent at it, getting an A and this and that. So I thought my English was pretty good. <laughs> But until I came here, I'm like, Dizzy, you're totally wrong. You don't know anything about English. <laughs> you don't understand people. You can't say what you want to. So I think the biggest challenge for me moving to Canada at first, I was, I was super excited. Being away from my family is, is not a challenge at all. I was so excited at the age of 18, being this adventurous person. Yeah, go move somewhere else. Because I also wanted to learn English. And I, I also wanted to be able to speak English as my way of communication. That's why I chose to study abroad. 
Yeah, you were mentioning uh, the power of educating people about the environment. Did you think that English was also a better medium since it's one of the universal language and you, you could this way reach out more people than just speaking in your native tongue? Right. And also when you have this diploma or degree from outside of Indonesia, from Australia, the United States, Canada, I don't know automatically why people would look up to you, like would think that, okay, she is more credible. I don't know, like that's something I guess we can study a little bit more because we all have the same brain, you know, we, we are just humans, but like, I guess because this is the first world country, so people will automatically trust you more and look look at you more because, okay, she's done her education and somehow it's more valid. <laughs> but also in those type of countries, the tuition tends to be higher, but, and also the currency tends to be uh, harder to match with a poor country so it shows that you have wealth to go study in those countries to begin with right or you can get scholarship normally as well but yeah that's also a factor if people know that okay she went to study by herself and she pays for it herself then you know that yeah i guess that placed you in a some level in the society so that people can respect you so people respect you more or or look at you more because you can do all these things on your own and you did it outside of Indonesia. And, and But just going back to the um, difficulty is that when I first came here, I was completely in shock because I thought I could speak English. I In my head, I was so confident. I'm like, mom and dad, goodbye. I'm gone, okay? Like <laughs> my sister came here with me the first time we I moved to Canada. My sister came and stayed with me for a month just to make sure I settled and I have a place. My my life is okay. It's on track. And then she left. But man, after she left, I was like, it's it's so difficult because I had no friends. I hadn't, I didn't really have family here. Um, all I had was just my courage. This is what I want, and I'm not gonna give up. <laughs> like I'm not gonna go home and be embarrassed that I took such a bold decision and only to give up because you know I I couldn't speak to people and I don't understand people so let's say for the first um six to nine months it was it was a world where I felt so lonely so alone because I had no one who can understand I thought at the time I'm sure if I opened up more I'm I would have had people who understand what I felt but I couldn't express how I feel why it feels so weird but I was excited because I was in a new country. So I think that helps. That was the thing that kept me going is that excitement, just being in a new country where there's different kinds of people, so diverse, so diverse. And, you know, Canada is pretty diverse. Although in the West Coast, it's more like we can see a lot of Asians. But anyways, that also helped me, helped me feel a little bit at home. But I could see so many different kinds of people and different languages. So I feel okay, okay, it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm still excited about being in a new country, but it was very difficult inside because I couldn't communicate properly and I don't understand people properly. Luckily, I had, like, what if I had food allergies and then, you know, they asked me in a restaurant, I don't understand, I just said yes. And I choke or I die. No. But um, <laughs> it was very difficult for me. So I think most of the time I spent it in the library because I had to study in English. What I really appreciate about McGill is that they're very sensitive to the amount of international students that they receive, which is about 30% of their student population. And I remember going to groups specifically targeted to international students 
to be like, what are you doing if you miss home? So the general feeling is you gather together, even though you're not from the same country, but there's the same feeling of, oh my God, you're so happy to be here. Yes, it's so difficult to be far away from family and you're kind of torn between wanting to succeed in this um, better country. Like what I mean by better is that it's um, something that will give you more opportunities than the country you come from, but also <laughs> you're missing your roots, you're missing your home. And discussions through this group also taught me that there's no such thing as a sole definition of success. It's only within you. Like you come to accomplish what you want and it's not the same definition for the next guy. If, even if you drop out of your school in Canada to go back, it doesn't mean you failed. It means you have lived that experience and now you're fulfilled to go back home to do whatever purpose you're supposed to do. So schooling in itself is, yeah, like you were exactly mentioning, it's a question of image and credibility, especially in a first world country. But also some people choose to uh, not do it because it's not what they want. Right, yeah. I, I wish though I knew this when I was back then, I was 18 and I was lonely and shy. I, I wish I knew these resources existed in my college. I, I didn't know, like I went to a small college in Vancouver that was 20 years ago. I don't know how important mental health was back then, even in Canada, but I wasn't aware of these things and and just the nature of my self being shy and being like in an introvert I, I think I didn't know how and if I can open up to people without being judged and and I just didn't know how to navigate these feelings back then and luckily I didn't give up but you I, you have a point I think it's so important for a school um, I guess McGill is such a big school so they receive a lot of international students so they must have like a platform or a system that promotes this kind of resources for different um not maybe not just for international students but maybe people from canada who are struggling because they miss home they're from other provinces or or just like any type of struggle right i also think maybe now mental health is such a thing now because it's so important i didn't know back then maybe there was already some groups of students that gathered um like international students because you know they're going through the same thing so they can comfort each other and but i didn't know that and i think that's something that is on me because i did not open up i always feel like i have to just try to be okay and it's a mechanism i guess that i always had maybe because leaving home at my leaving my parents at the age of 14 you just have to try to always be okay somehow. And in Indonesia, of course, mental health, don't even talk about it back then. You, know, you, don't, you don't get to talk about your mental state. You just perform, you know. Um, so coming to here, I, I thought, I still, I still carry that kind of mentality that, okay, you just have to be okay. You made it so far. You, you, you have to take the consequence of being away from home and you're going to be fine, even though it was hard. There's a funny story about this English it's funny because I did not really understand English. But at the, at the first time when I entered um, this small college in Vancouver, I studied ESL. At the same time, I think after three or so months, I started my first semester of university, even though I didn't have like a good understanding of like university level English. But I, I took it anyway. And I think um, the first semester, one of my classes where I did biology, which was nice. I loved biology then, but I studied so hard because there's so many things there that I didn't understand. And then I also did um, elect electives 
in anthropology. It's so funny because like, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but one of the biggest component of the grade, I don't know how many percentage was that, maybe 30 or 40, was to write this essay. And the essay had like a specific question, which I totally misunderstood. <laughs> so I wrote such a long, 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 long essay. I don't know what I was writing, um, but I tried the very best to write well. And I gave it to my teacher at the end. So he, he read it. And then because this is such a big part of the grade, like 30, 40% or maybe more, I did not answer the question because I misunderstood the question. This is, this is just an example for you about the, the skills that I had was not good enough. And <laughs> you remember what the question was? I don't remember what the question was, but I could try to find it probably still there. I didn't remember what the question was, but the teacher called me at the end of like when he gave back all the grades, he's like, okay, I need to talk to you. Okay, so I went to his office and he said, I really like your essay. You wrote um, good stuff in there, but he, something like that. I don't know what exactly he said, but you did not answer my question actually. But I want to give you another chance because, because I see how much effort you put in your essay and I cannot give you zero because you put an effort and I saw that. So I'm gonna give you another chance. This is what the question means. <laughs> That is so sweet and so considerate. Right. So when I understood what the question really meant, I'm like, oh my God, of course. Like my essay did not answer that question at all. And so he said, okay, I want you to write another essay that answers this question and then give it back to me. And, and he, I did got an A for that class in the end. But imagine if this was in Indonesia, I, didn't, I don't think like I would have gotten the same treatment. And also it's nice that I went to a small community college where the teacher only has, I don't know, maybe like some 20, 30 students in class. So it's, it's a small college. So it's not like big university like McGill. Maybe if I was at McGill, I also wouldn't have gotten that special treatment because there's hundreds of kids in that class. The teacher wouldn't have had the time to pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. I have a very similar experience actually. Because when I came to the States, at first I was in Los Angeles and I took classes at UCLA. And that was the opposite as you. It was big format classes. And we had this assignment that I could not understand, but it was totally my fault. Also, I, my English was not very good. It was my first semester. And I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I do remember the question though, because, because afterwards I became really careful because yeah. I got a bad grade for it and the teacher did not really care. She just like dropped the grade. She didn't have the compassion that your teacher had about, oh, you put so much effort. Although she might have known that I did not come from the States. <laughs> so the question was, you need to interview two people that are 40 years apart um, about the theme of this class, which was self and society and how do they relate to technology? So yeah, you're supposed to interview someone who's young and someone who's very old. And I did not understand it. I interviewed two older people because I understood you need to interview over 40 years old. So that was my mistake. And on my copy, she's like, um, because you did not respect the, the question, I dropped you, uh, I dropped some points. So I was like, oh man, it's true. I could not understand it, but it was my English. Right, right. So I guess we experience this differently. You were in a big school and you were in the States. I'm not sure like how teachers are in the States. But these um, old professors in a small community college in Vancouver, Canada was kind enough to see like, okay, this student had an effort. She just 
and I'm sure she, he knew I wasn't from here. English must have been my first language. I don't know what grammar was, what my grammar was like in my essay, but it was, I'm very grateful that he was able to, to give me a second chance. Otherwise, I don't know what my grade would have been, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the kind of kindness we need in this world. It's so cool that he was able to oversee you as a normal student, like because mm -hmm. you didn't start with the same level of English as everyone else, and that he took extra time to correct another copy. Right. And, and I think those little things at the beginning made me, even though I was so lonely and I felt so bad inside because I don't know how to communicate to people and I was, I became very closed off and shy. And I, I think these little acts of kindness from people just like helped me get through my difficult time. And I think in an over, over a period of a year or, or two, that's when my language proficiency and fluency kind of like increased exponentially because I tried so very hard to integrate into this country that I wanted to stay. And again, it goes back to the power of the educator. Do you have the right. And right. Are you supporting your student or do you put them down? <laughs> and, and it was an anthropology class. Like it wasn't core requirement for my environmental science. It's just an elective. But look, I... I appreciated that class so much. I read every book that was recommended or that we used in class properly. And I did well. Like Kudos on that, Daisy. Kudos. So you're right. The power of educator had such a big impact on me, on, 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 on the students. Imagine if the professor didn't give me that second chance and just drop a C on me. I would have hated social sciences for the, for the rest of my courses and um, program in university. That's really good. And I'm happy that it went well as a start because then I'm sure it led you to continue staying in Canada. <laughs> right? I'm still here. Almost still 20 here. years. <laughs> <laughs> and getting uh, your citizenship soon. Right. That's on my to-do list to, to submit. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. So can you tell us about your start in grad school, specifically uh, at McGill and how did you choose to go in academia? So I was very excited to, to do my grad school. Doing master's is always part of my like, life plan. I wanted to not just stop at a bachelor. I wanted to get a master's degree. Doing a PhD, though, was, wasn't really like something I planned until the end of my master's. My professor offered me um, some opportunities if I wanted to continue doing a PhD. So I gave it a few months thought and then he brought it up again. And then I saw it as like, okay, it's a like a relatively easy transition because I was still working with the same topic. So I thought, okay, it would be a good transition and it will just be several years and then I'll get my doctorate. And hopefully that will, I don't know, like I didn't really have like a concrete plan of what to do with it. But now I know that I don't want to stay in the academia. Probably I knew it pretty early on in my PhD that academic life isn't going to be my career. I would like to go out and into the industry and try to find a job, I guess. Yeah, but Daisy, you did thrive in academia. You published close to four papers towards the end of it, which is amazing. Right. Yeah, I, I updated my LinkedIn recently, and I think I have a total of seven or nine publications. <laughs> So it's it's a it's a pretty good um academic portfolio. Unfortunately, that's not something I'm gonna pursue, but that's okay because you know like I've looked at my research life as a not just a success in 
my career professionally, but it's also a, a very personal um, accomplishment for me for going through all these times um, studying. You, you, you know the life of research is not easy. Like many times things, actually most times, things don't go as planned. And how do you keep on continuing finding a solution to this seemingly dead end problem? And I think that's not unique in the PhD and master's uh, research. This is probably a pretty common occurrence. I, I think for me, more than what I've accomplished academically, it's something personal that I feel so successful. It's really something internal that, you know, I might not have like a lot of money in my bank account, but I feel pretty successful because I've accomplished many things that I didn't think I could. And many days in my PhD, I thought like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to give up this because this isn't going anywhere. And there are major times where I actually was ready to quit, but I didn't end up quitting because there's some good news, you know, there's some good news that happened to my life at the time academically. And I'm like, okay, it's not time to quit. So like we see like at the end of it, yes, I did get my PhD and I, but along the line there are like so many bumps along the road that you have to keep on overcoming have to keep on overcoming and i think like to me that is a success personally for me and for those times that you wanted to quit very very badly where did you find that kind of support that lifted you up and also got you back on track <laughs> i know this is like uh maybe it's more personal reasons but there during my during my master's there's no time i wanted to quit it was hard because you have to work like 10 hours per day for so many days and you just burn out but i never really wanted to quit in my master's and also it's a two-year program so you can see kind of the end of it before you even start you know like okay in two years i'll be finished but with phd you can say okay i'll finish maybe in four years <laughs> but then two years come like oh no it's not gonna be done in four years and then the fourth year comes you're like I think I need another year. <laughs> another year come, um, maybe a few more months, you know? So you don't really know when it's gonna end. So there are two major times in my PhD that I, I was ready to quit. And the first time I wanted to quit, I'm, I'm not sure why this happens. I guess the universe just knows what's, what our life is supposed to be like. So, you know, we stay on the path that we are supposed to. The first time I wanted to quit, the following day, my paper got accepted in a really good journal like it was in journal of hydrology so it's like it's such a boost that you know just those little things maybe it's it seems little for other people but for me it was like a long work and like a long revision this and that this and that and so finally when i'm like okay i, I think i'm just gonna i'm ready to quit the only thing that i wasn't ready to was how i'm gonna tell my parents <laughs> that i'm quitting my phd after like a few years but then the following day, my paper got accepted. I got the email notification. So I'm like, wow, I, I, like, I forget all of my hardship during that time. I forgot all of my wanting to quit. Like, and <laughs> and it's a big deal in academia. It's like the one incentive yeah, of yeah, yeah. going forward with your diploma. It's, it's like a validation to your work, you know? Mm -hmm, like, exactly. It's a milestone. I don't know how we should see it otherwise, you know? So when I got it, I'm like, oh, it just like everything's fine everything's fine okay no more quitting i guess this is the sign from the universe that it's not time to quit <laughs> how many years of phd was that after probably two 
too. Okay. Yeah. And what about the second time? The second time, it was maybe another another year or a year and a half after that. So three three and a half years into the PhD. The second time, I was ready to quit too. I'm not sure why. Maybe I just got so tired and so fed up, and I'm like, this is. I'm done. I'm done with research. It's not gonna, I'm not gonna finish this problem because there is no solution. I also want to quit. And then the following day, I got this email from Megil saying, oh, you've, uh, you've won an award, like some excellence, you know, award. So we're giving you this money. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Okay. Okay. Another sign from the universe. Really, it's just like that. So it's really just like that. So nobody can just tell the universe like five times a year that you want to quit then <laughs> more papers and more words. <laughs> I think the universe kind of knew when I was hitting that threshold. Yeah. All the other times I wanted to quit, I know it it probably knows that she's she's not serious. <laughs> But those two times were major, serious decisions. So it wasn't a lot of money that I got from the award, but still it was like, oh, 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 okay, this is Again, I'm validated. Like, again, this is, I'm supposed to stay. So it made me happy and it made me feel like, okay, I can still do this work. I can still find solution to this problem. And so after that three, three and a half years into my PhD, the second time I wanted to quit, I never had that um, serious decision again that I wanted to quit. That's wonderful. And I'm glad you finished it because it must have been really tough, especially with the COVID towards the end. So how was it like doing your defense on Zoom? Actually, surprisingly, it was a pleasant experience. For one, I think, you know, it's not as intimidating as it could have been because we are just facing facing my screen. So surprisingly, it was very pleasant and it was very smooth. McGill had a person who took care of everything, like the technological part, so that I don't have to have that burden um, in making sure everything is running. I think the extra stress being lifted off of me was very very helpful in just me focusing on my um, studying and my defense and just delivering what I've been researching on and also it helps that my committee members were very nice people actually they were I can see they were there really to listen to me and to ask me questions and to have a proper discussion about my research they're not there to like okay I'm gonna come and grill this girl Because it's part of the process too, you know, you have to be a little bit um, put on the corner and be made uncomfortable and rethink about your whole research after you've done it for five years, you know. And I think that's a little bit part of it, the process of defense so that they want to know you can, you can now be an independent researcher standing on your own two feet, like being asked questions on the spot and how you respond to things you don't know and you're not too sure about. I'm actually very lucky that my committee members were there to actually, I can tell that they were there to have a discussion about my research. Some things, of course, I don't know, and they don't know. They just want to know how questions that they ask, you can see that they put some interest and put some time into reading my research and put up questions that will lead to a fruitful discussion, not making me feel kind of stupid about my own research after I've done it for five years yeah so that in that way I think um I would have had I would have preferred a person-to-person defense because in the hindsight I know that it's more of a discussion so it would have been nice to have them like in front of me and have like a normal nice discussion but um having it through zoom yes it eliminates 
some parts of being intimidated and that was nice were you disappointed that your family didn't fly in person because of the covid yeah i you know my family especially my dad he was very much looking forward to be coming here i mean if there was no covid they they probably would have wanted to watch my defense too in person but i would be okay that they didn't come for my defense but i would have wanted them to be here for like maybe the graduation um and the ceremony because i will there's no more time when they they would come when i finished my masters and i had my convocation my parents wanted to come but i said no no you don't have to come now i still have a phd to do and you can just come when i'm graduating from phd after i'm done it's no longer <laughs> going to happen <laughs> that part was a little bit disappointing but i think we got over it now yeah did you make your dad proud because you were saying that he was the one who pushed you to do a phd that's right yeah so when i had um, to make a decision about going further or not with the phd i talked to my parents and my mom was more inclined for me to go and just find a job because that was the plan you know masters and then job and i think my mom wanted me to be in the workforce rather than in the acad- academia but my dad said my dad's dream also i think he always wanted me to have like this is such a typical asian parents mentality they he always wanted me to have a doctor degree and he wanted me to be a doctor you know when i was in high school he wanted me to go and be a doctor but i didn't want that instead i came here <laughs> i came here and pursue other degrees so so it was in a way i think when i told my dad i wanted to pursue phd in a way it's kind of like to appease him and to like please him that i finally i can i maybe get a doctor degree to maybe not the same way as you wished but it's still a doctorate degree and i think i deep inside me too i feel like i owe my parents a lot for what they have done for my life if i do that for them it's because i feel in in my heart that i wanted to give back something for their sacrifice something back to them so my dad actually was watching me defending using my phone i as um like a video chat with them to for them to let me see my defense and i think my dad was like there the whole time like 3 hours his eyes were just like he has his hands crossed and then paying attention to me and i could see it he didn't move so yeah i think at the end of it he was he felt proud that i okay yeah she's done now and she got her doctorate degree <laughs> yeah that's so sweet and that's such a nice story to have supportive parents and also supportive community uh, committee members like having a nice committee members that also helps me perform at my best and I, as again like you said this shows the power of educators because we always look up to them like somehow even if you think okay i'm also a phd student i also have knowledge i i know some things you don't know you know but like i guess we just naturally look up to them and look for their validation and at the beginning of my defense i was so nervous but when i see their faces that okay you know they're paying attention and it just gives me like it's, it's not like they're making weird faces imagine if that make made weird faces in my head i would be thinking oh my god they don't like my presentation and then that could go all wrong but because i saw that they're concentrating i think they're paying attention to me so that gave me a boost and like a confidence okay okay my presentation is going well and i i i happen to really like my defense presentation also so that helped um my professors actually really helped me with my presentation and they gave me really good feedback 
and at the end of it that's why like you know you can see the power of these educators because i i seek their validation when i submitted my draft presentation they went through it and they like give me everything that they can to make sure this is a good presentation and at the end of it it's like a totally different presentation the content is the same but the way i'm gonna deliver it is different and i just gain so much more confidence by receiving their feedback and their feedback might not even be like significant or important but look it just pushed me to to get to a point where i really like my presentation I had a weird experience with my master's because in our program in neuroscience, we also had to uh, present our work in front of a committee member before they validate your results and say, okay, now you can draft your master's thesis. I also had amazing, amazing help uh, and uh, advice uh, during the presentation and how to write my thesis. But before and after, nothing. I was very surprised at how fake it was because throughout my whole master's, my PI was barely there. And I had very little to no support. And after that meeting, uh, after I wrote the thesis, no one corrected it. I just submitted it because no one just, no one cared. So I was wondering if it was a, a sort of an um, image in my lab to my community member to just care when it's a face-to-face, -face, but when they're not here, then the responsibility is not as important. Or it could be that they put the emphasis on postdocs and PhD students rather than master's students. I was the only master's student and it was very difficult to not have somebody to, to help me. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> It's very interesting, but it depends on what lab you're in. It also depends on how UPI approaches things, whether he emphasizes the students or their work or their publications, because publication is always, always a big deal. So sometimes at the detriment of students' mental health. Yeah, and I think like this is the, the, in the academia, like a lot of our superiors, they are not taught to how to best manage like students. And I think that is, that that's lacking. And I, I think that's very important. The, the people that are sitting in the higher um, hierarchy should, should know this, but I, I think it's not part of the academic lifestyle to know how to manage your student's life. And that includes mental health and physical health as well. But it's funny because the postdoc I was working with explained it to me this way, that us, we're in charge of performing the science and writing papers. The PI, his only role is to bring money to the lab so that he can sustain us. So we have different roles and he saw that it was justified, the fact that he, that the PI was never here or that he cared about networking and building connections. And you were talking about journals doing some favoritism as well. And I can yeah. see why Uh, it's more important for the PI to have the image of the lab and we have to do uh, the backward backstage. So you see, there's like the politics too. Like I came into the academic world. I was so naive too, because I thought this is a place that we learn. This is a place that is based on merits rather than image. <laughs> But it's not. It's also like, unfortunately, we find, I found it the hard way that everywhere else is kind of just the same. I also had had an experience where I submitted a paper to this journal and I'm pretty sure my paper was not bad. It wasn't even close to bad, but the comments that we got was attacking. And I think one of my authors got, I think there's several, like a few authors in that paper. It was my paper. And the last author was saying, he said, I, I'm pretty sure I know who that is. And he doesn't like my professor. It happens that way because it was too strange to receive those attacking comments like if you want to reject my paper because it's not for the journal or it's just not good enough that's fine like but the comments that he mentioned it's as if we don't know anything so so we just withdrew our paper and submitted elsewhere 
That's, that is so interesting because uh, we're talking about image, but we're also talking about like how the popularity of your lab is also important because <laughs> the reason why my lab got so big at some point, we're more than 20 people. It's because it's, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, taking chances on whoever you accept in your lab, cheap students, cheap labor. They may or may not give you a chance of getting papers. So the more students you get, the more chances you get. You have to publish paper in your lab. Mm -hmm. So the image of publishing more and more, like becoming a factory. Also, we're talking in academia about publishing more quantity rather than quality. Right. That's also mm -hmm. a big issue in science that how reliable are the results and how can you trust the data if the, the whole goal is to make money through quantity. Right. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. And unfortunately, we've, I found out about it the hard way because I really came to grad school thinking that this is a safe place for me because this is a one place where, you know, we're just going to have to study and we're going to have to use our brain. And it's about quality rather than quantity, like you said. But I'm so glad you have a, a good heart and you still persisted in uh, having good faith in your work and that you still like didn't decrease the quality of your work just because you had to graduate. You still kept your passion for environmental sciences, but also you published a lot of work. So congratulations again on getting your PhD this Thank year. You. And I'm Thank so you. proud of you. I'm so happy you're my friend and that we met early on when I came to Canada. You've been such an amazing soul to me. And oh, same, same, same. <laughs> That's also how I feel. Thank you. I love having these discussions with you because we understand each other's struggles, but also we enrich each other. <laughs> okay, that's nice. <laughs> And I wanted to thank you again for being my, my guest in here. And I wanted to know if you had a, a last piece of advice for our listeners on education monsters. <laughs> so the last piece of advice I'm, based on my experience is like, when you think you hit the dead end, just keep going. <laughs> Maybe the <laughs> universe also will like give you some hints that you are still on the right path. And like really hard work and perseverance pays off if you want to achieve your goal. And I'm sure we all have many goals. Maybe it's not academia, maybe it's not PhD, but if you have a goal that you don't want to give up on, you will feel like you hit a dead end and just don't think that it's a dead end. So just keep going. Perseverance and hard work pays off. That works. And yeah. thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm also very happy that you, I've met you here. Um, and you have made my McGill experience um, one of the best in oh, that um, science group. Yeah. Thank you. If you love the podcast, you can check out my blog, Education Monsters. It's education-monsters.com. You can also support my project on multicultural education by donating on my Patreon page. The link is posted below. If you make a donation, you could have a shout out on my next article or podcast. You could also choose the subject of my new article or podcast. And if you need French or English lessons... Meet me on the italki platform. I'll put the link below. Shoot me a message as well if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast. And may today be the best day of your life. Bye.